train stops, Martin and the other two reach the shores. They're tired and frozen, and they've landed near some high cliffs. Martin offers to look for a cave while they rest, but the other two refuse. They have a feeling there's something creepy about this spot. They make it a ways up the cliff and rest on a little ledge. Martin thinks that if they push on a little more, they might make it to a bigger ledge and some shelter. Rose promises a tired Grum that she'll get breakfast for them tomorrow so he can sleep in. It cheers him up quite a bit because like, he's like, I'm not built for climbing. And she's like, my paws are falling asleep. Yeah. She's like, oh, you're a champion digger that you can't be a champion climber as well. And Martin agrees, though, there's something off about this place. And uh, vibes be Not a vibe. (laughs) Not a vibe. Their climb is abruptly ended when they are caught in kelp nets, hauled up and clubbed into unconsciousness by small dancing creatures. Like what happens is they're like, okay, let's just get us up under this next ledge. And they like start, they get their paws on it. They've begun to haul themselves up. Bam, caught in nets and just basically, uh, ass over kettle hauled up like fish in a net and then they just see the outlines of these dancing small creatures before they're fucking clubbed unconscious Mm -hmm. martin wakes slowly realizing he's being poked and prodded by small mouse-like creatures they speak a broken tongue and seems Uh. yeah uh, and seem very proud of having caught the three he's quick to show them aggression back telling them to quit poking He yells so loud, they all scatter, and he rubs his sore head, feeling a big bump. He basically acts like a predator, like snapping his teeth at them and being very ferocious, Mm -hmm. which is fair. Like, we've seen Martin do this before. Martin, this is the thing that I've kind of noticed with Martin is that, especially before the end of Moss Flower, where he mellows out, you know, he acts kind of a bit more like a predator than other mice do. Yeah. Not in that he is a predator, but he has that aggression and confidence that other, like, mice don't necessarily have. He lacks the and timidity it's, that is expected. He, he, he does lack the timidity. He, he knows that he can fight, will fight, and be able to win. And not necessarily in a, like, uh, narcissistic way. He's not, like, uh, like, bigging himself up about it. Like, no. He is a very good warrior. He is good at being a warrior. He's not gonna go and, like, beat somebody up just because he doesn't know what these creatures are. They're poking him and being aggressive. And so his reaction is, okay, let me get them off of me. Once he learns what they are, and we're going to get to that, he kind of chills a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but we also get the kind of stereotypical, like, this was an old white British man writing this, and he was a boomer. And <laughs> and though he was older than a boomer. Was he? Yeah, he's older oh, than he a boomer. Oh, he would have been the, like, the silent generation, mm-hmm, wouldn't he? Because my parents are boomers. And they're, like, well, they might be in the tail end of it, but, like, my parents are in their 60s now. My mom is a Gen X. Yeah. So. My grandma's a a boomer. Looking around, he sees he's in a large cave. Rose and Grum are caged as well, a ways off, still out cold. He watches as the small creatures bring in fish, giving him a wide berth. 
A large hedgehog arrives behind them, carrying fishing gear, and he's tied to a heavy log. Martin asks him, where is this place and what are these things? The hedgehog winks and tells him his name. It's Palum, and he'll explain it all in a bit. Grum wakes up, and his moaning wakes up Rose as well, who launches into angry demands to be freed. Grum asks her to stop. Her shouts are giving him a headache. The two mice check on each other, seeing they're mostly okay for all they have aches and pains. Like, they're like, yeah, I hurt and I'm thirsty, but I'm not dead. And Grum knows what the critters are. They're pygmy shrews. He's just, he has this moment where he's like, oh, man. Yeah. Like, the vibe that Grum gives off is very much, oh, man, fucking pygmy shrews. Here it is. He's like, uh, Grum nodded. Pygmy shrews. Why might have known? Like and I saw pygmy shrews happen in the text, and I immediately tried, to, my entire body tried to invert itself into non-existence. Yeah. Because, and I talked about this a little bit with uh, Skylake, because, like, he was there while I was reading. I was like, this feels very, like, because we're getting into, this is the savage tribe trope. The way that they act, the way that they talk, it is reminiscent of the way that Brian has written these in the past. But worse, because I remember from when I was younger, because they don't show these on TV anymore, but when I was younger, when you were younger, Kit, they still did. They would show the, like, particularly racist Looney Tunes episode. Oh, yes, absolutely. And there were a few that would have the, like, pygmy Africans tropes. Mm-hmm. And it was just, what the fuck? Okay, why are you guys doing this? This isn't good. (laughs) It's not. And it gets... It just... Oh my god. Like, it... I'm gonna... We're putting this content warning before we keep going forward. It doesn't get better. It gets worse with their portrayal. Like, Mm -hmm. there are a few points, like we talked about before, where Brian kind of pushes at the comfort zone before kind of sliding back into it. And it's like, okay, I can see what you're trying to do. It's still not good, but I can see what you're trying to do here. The entire bit with the pygmy shrews who are called the high beasts. Yeah, they're called the high beasts. Um, they call themselves the high beasts. They do not call themselves pygmy shrews. Yeah. Um, In fact, uh, Queen Ambala gets very upset when he calls her pygmy shrew. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? There is no pygmy here. Um, now, in her defense with that one, though, calling any sapient person a pygmy yeah. is extremely offensive. Yeah. Like, you would not call a little person that. Yeah. Whatsoever. Definitely not. It's like calling them the other thing that we also are not, we're not calling them that. Mm-mm. All right. Like, you don't do that. It, it just, it gets so bad and I hate it. And we're going to be making bad noises about it the whole time because it's bad. But we've got to get through it. We're not even halfway uh, there. So, let's see. Palum comes Palum. back in, smiling and ignoring the rudeness of the shrews around him as they chatter in their native tongue. We get the mild implication that they have a native tongue here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell all of our listeners now, they do not. The native tongue is broken English with words run together in groups of twos or threes. Mm-hmm. 
He tells the trio to never look angry, always smile. It confuses the shrews. Martin does so even as he has to dodge the return of the shrew poking him with a stick. He threatens to take the stick and stuff it up his little noodle nose. Palum warns him not to. These are all babies, squidgies, and the one doing the poking, Dinger, is the one and only son of Queen Ambala, leader of the pygmy shrews. She'd kill Martin if he hurt her son. And so Martin, so Palum does what he can to get Dinger to lay off. He does so by reverse psychology, telling Dinger to keep on doing it, keep poking at the mouse. And so, of course, the contrary little shrew turns to poke and smack at Palum instead. So, okay, when this came up with the squidgies, with the babes, it didn't bother me because, like, you can do this to kids and this is exactly what they'll do. Mm-hmm. Like, if a kid is doing something you don't want them to do, I think, like, half the time, if you tell them to keep doing it, they'll stop. Because they're like, don't tell me what to do. Because, like, that's just how kids are. Yeah. This works on the adults. Yeah. Which is why it just, it's like, oh, for God's sake, Brian. Yeah, for fuck's sake. Um, Because Palum says they'll always do the opposite of what they're told to do. Let me really quick read uh, what specifically Palum said to Dinger, just so that our audience can get an idea of how the shrews talk. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you need it, we're not going to read a whole lot of that. Mm -hmm. Because it's bad. But the way that the shrews talk is as follows. Uh, Turning to the offender, Palum addressed him in pygmy shrew language. Higgig, Dinger, good a good. You pokey more big a mouse. I'm going to recede into my own spinal column. Yeah. Just like, and then Dinger's response, just, Pin Piggy, shut a mouth. No tell Dinger what I do. It's like, that's not another language. It's, it's not. not. It's baby talk <clears throat> made to sound worse. Like, it's Ugh. just. <sighs> so Rose asks for some food and water, but Palum pauses her, hearing a little drum being beaten. He says that's the queen and they're to call her Bellamum. They're to be respectful and not mention Higgig. It means they're laughing at her. Otherwise, let him talk. Umbala... All right, let me read Umbala's entrance. Yeah, because, because... she is plump and gaudily dressed. <sighs> Umbala was a plump little figure. She wore golden pantaloons and a cloak of light blue. On her head was a coronet studded with bright shell pieces and small polished beach pebbles. A seagull feather stuck up at the back of it. Had she not been such an important personage, the three friends would have burst out laughing at the comical sight she made. So, firstly, firstly, her looking funny to them is an insult. It's an insult because white people... Uh, uh, particularly like British colonizers and other European colonizers, anybody who did not dress like them and dressed in those bright colors and patterns and things, they would consider it almost comical mm-hmm. because it was childish to them because only children dress like that mm-hmm. to them. But I'm from the South. I see like 
native African patterns literally everywhere. I cannot name the specific names because I don't know them, but I know that they come from multiple different countries and different tribes of people. Like, they're as vast and varied as Scottish tartans, right? Yep. In fact, they're old. They're a lot older than Scottish tartans, too. They are so fu- much fucking older, yeah. like... Like people don't realize I was just Scottish... giving the white people a equivalent, which is Scottish tartans. Yeah. And like people also don't realize <laughs> that like at least clan tartans, they weren't actually thing until like the seven sixteen to seventeen hundreds. Like they're not as old as they... people like to lead you on to believe. Yeah. They were made popular by like one of the the like kings mm-hmm. and then like everybody started doing it and it wasn't that important. Mm-hmm. But it's important to families now, so I'm not going to try to take that away from them. But, like... Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, like, just because it's not like, oh, it's a thousand years old doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah, it's important to some people. Exactly. So, but... Also, I do want to say one savage... thing. savage... Yes. The feather in the back of her crown, I don't think that's meant to be, like, a Native American stereotype. I think that's meant to more play upon, like, the... You know, like the ostrich feather in the cap, the 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 royalty with like feathers in the giant wigs. It's more to like I know. play up like the, so the European the chapter art for this yeah. shows her. Like the chapter art for this chapter shows uh Queen uh Ambala and she is shown as like a little shrew with like a sword. It it's a sword for her because she's so small, it's a dagger to anybody else. Mm-hmm. She's wearing like um the cloak and the pants. The cloak and the pants. She's also got like a puffy sleeved, like royal shirt, like blouse shirt on. Mm -hmm. She has, it's, the crown she's wearing is not a coronet. No, it's like a straight up crown. (laughs) It's a straight up crown. And the feather she has in her cap does look like a very fluffy ostrich feather. They specifically said seagull feather. Mm -hmm. And seagull feathers, for the most part, do not sit like that on them. It could be part of the down though. Like they do have some downy feathers. Potentially. Like the th- like... But it's not described like that. Yeah. The way it is described <sighs> gives the image of a straight up and down feather. And I, as an American, right? Mm-hmm. As a as an American who is very aware of Native American savage stereotypes, mm-hmm. it feels akin to that. Because Brian doesn't necessarily take one savage tribe stereotype from like one part of the world and just use that it's a mix and mash because that's what they do with all of them yeah for the most part like as time has gone on they've become a mix and mash of different stereotypes if you just want to evoke a savage uh savage tribe stereotype pick whatever you want exactly right so the the feather sticking up from the back of this crown from this piece of accessory headgear that shows that this particular person is the leader of the savage tribe Mm -hmm. feels bad it's racist it doesn't it's it's bad it is it feels bad and if it's something else if it is like a crown in the cap or not a crown a feather in the cap type vibe from like uh europe it doesn't come off that way to an American. You know what it makes me think of? How back in the day the British made up the song Yankee Doodle to make fun of us? Yeah. You know, like the stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. It's making fun of Like, what have you done to earn that feather? What have you done to earn that fashion? You're not yeah. fashionable. You're just some hick who thinks he's cool. Yeah. And then, of course, like Americans were just like, hey, we like that tune. It's ours now. And the British are like, wait, no. <laughs> 
Yeah, which is extremely classist as well. Yeah, exactly. So just everything about the way that the high beast of like tribe. I'm going to stop calling them tribe. I'm going to start calling them a society. Yeah, because they are a society. Like they can, they are they, a society. They cook. They have crafts. Like these are. That's the thing that makes you sad because like Brian shows that these little guys have culture. They've got culture. They've got society. Like they clearly care about each other. Like yeah, they're what Brian tries to present as brutish, but they're also like taking care of themselves and living in a fairly harsh environment at that. Yeah. There's, like, all sorts of things around them that want to kill them. Yeah. And I have no doubt that if, like, Badrang knew they were there... He would absolutely enslave them or burn... He'd probably just burn them out. They're probably too small to be good slaves. He would probably just murder them and eat them. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, it's just... We'll, we'll talk about it more, too. Like, we, we're going to talk <laughs> yeah. about it, but we have to space this out. Um, yeah, I just need everybody to know that, like, I have been a little bit quiet for the past few, like, the past, like, batch of episodes, like, the last couple of episodes, like, in the last book, I wasn't as loud about, like, racism and shit. It's so bad in this book, I cannot help but be loud. And if you are a new listener starting in this book, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I think if anyone's, like, stuck around this long, they know our opinions on this trope. Yeah. Um, well, some people might start in a book that they recognize. That's true. Yeah. That's why we space it out by book. Yeah. So, you know. You know, and another thing this makes me think of is, like, the, the propaganda that, like, a lot of Christianity used. And they're like, oh, we're going to these lands to save these people from their ignorance. And it's just like, oh, for goodness sakes. If you don't know the story, there's an island uh, that is completely cut off from the rest of the world. They literally have like uh i believe the sri lankan government keeps like military boats in the waters at a certain point around the island to prevent people from getting to it a white dude decided i'm gonna go there to spread the word of jesus christ and almost murdered all of them by bringing diseases that they had no defenses against mm. he got murked too justifiably they did kill him and uh they were not persecuted by the world for that because they made they made their they stand. They literally clear. have told people. They literally have told people they have a long-standing like agreement with the Sri Lankan government. Like, hey, nobody comes here. If they come here, we're killing them. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, okay, let's get back to the book. Uh, Respect people. Yeah. She demands <laughs> to know Martin's name, and he answers, also introducing Rose and Grum, saying they mean the pygmy shrews no harm. This sends her into a rage, and she pokes at Martin with a little sword. No pygmies here. Palum intervenes, explaining Martin was still muddled by the strike to his head. He doesn't know the tribe's name. So Martin plays up being tired and confused. She considers it and falls for it, giggling and mocking. Palum runs with it, using reverse psychology again to get her to let the others out, but not without being hobbled. They'll watch the littles and be fed for their work. He acts astonished by her cleverness, and she gloats and how much smarter she thinks she is than him. Like it, Basically, mm. he tells her to kill them, and she's like, no, they will watch the squidgies. Yeah. And they will be uh, tied up to a log to hobble them and keep them from escaping. And he's just like, how do you think of this? And she's like, because I'm super fucking smart. Yep. Why are they always stupid? Because if they Why weren't... Are they always stupid? If they weren't, Brian wouldn't be able to play up this trope and make our characters seem... Like, he's using this to make 
the main character seems so much smarter and stronger and intelligent. And it feels bad because it's... It feels so bad. It makes me so angry. This is like... Mm -hmm. I don't... I know I've gotten mad at Brian in the past, but this particular bit, because you can see him pushing at the boundaries of his comfort zone with this, and it is just incredibly frustrating and angering to read this, because it's like, you, at some point, when writing this, how did it not click? Mm -hmm. That this was not good to write, that this was unkind how did it not click in his mind that this was unkind? Because, mm -hmm. like, I don't, I cannot understand this because of how I am with my brain. I, as an autistic person, it is extremely difficult for me to understand how people who are like, like, people, I'm not saying Brian was like this. This is me kind of, I, my brain jumped a couple thoughts. Mm -hmm. I struggle to understand how racists and classists and people who cannot be kind to other human beings work. I physically and mentally cannot understand it because it doesn't make sense to me. So seeing this, like my brain is like, how did it not click in your mind that this was unkind to other people? Like, how did it not click? I, I cannot understand. And I know that again, we can fall back onto the, well, he's just writing tropes. And like, okay, sure, I still don't get it. And part of that is I'm extremely autistic. I cannot physically wrap my brain around this shit. Mm -hmm. You know? I, I'm sure, Kit, you have an idea of like how he could have done this and it not clicked that I cannot fucking fathom right now okay if i had to try and explain it like why i think he did this and again like it's falling back on the old tropes it's falling back on the old not exactly myths but like falling upon like the fact that he grew up in that imperialistic society in the mm -hmm. colonizer colonizer society of we we are the base society we are the baseline of civilization the british empire is the baseline for what is civilized and like even if by later in his life the british empire was no longer an empire he still grew up baked in that culture and writing from that he knows that oh well if i want to make my character seem more noble more serious and like they're the smart ones they're the good guys i have this chance to like i can contrast them against the savage tribe and not only that but like later in the story when martin risks himself to save dinger it's like not only that but like now he's playing up like look at how noble and christian and and you know respectable my character is because even if he's been abused by these people he's still risking his life to save the child that he hates so much look at what a good guy he is like this is it's the white savior complex as well and it's something that is so it's something that is so much part of the culture of his time and even our time. Like, look at movies like Avatar. You know, it's that like, oh, this is the savage tribe, but, you know, I can still save them. Although Avatar also plays into the noble savage trope, which we're not going to get into right now. We do not have time for that. 
Um, we do not. Oh but... my god! I, this is why I haven't seen the second Avatar movie because, yeah. as much as I love the aesthetics of those movies, I want to watch it. But it's like Ooh. I know I'm gonna get mad watching it. It's like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> They're fucking beautiful. A lot of the aesthetics, I want... and the creature and character design of that that world. Is very inspirational. I want to a me. documentary of that world. I want all of the humans taken out of it. Just, Just remove them, please. We don't need it. They don't need to be there. We uh, don't need. Okay, this. but we can't we get into this tangent. We need to focus. Back. Okay. Um, but basically, listeners, if you want us to just talk about Avatar, uh, the the James Cameron movie, we can do a special uh, episode. Let us know, because yeah. we will just talk for three hours about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, but. Basically, like, you can't understand it because you and I have been raised. Like, I was born and raised in California. I was raised around many different cultures. In fact, I, I'm glad you brought this up because I want to mention this too. Um, like, the insulting the language. Like, the, the gibberish language that they speak, which is a mashup of English. It's, it's something very dehumanizing that has been around for as long as there have been different languages. Like, the term barbarian... One of the theories for where that term originated from was the Romans making fun of German tribes or other tribes who were not Roman, of cultures that were not Roman. Because when they would talk about their language, they would go, ba, 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 like making fun of their language, which became barbarian. Mm -hmm. And it's the, you see the same thing happening today. Again, like growing up in California, I grew up in an area with a lot of Hmong, a lot of Mexican, a lot, a lot of different mm -hmm. Asian cultures. Armenian cultures, but you know what my dad would do when he was really grumpy and wanted to make fun of Mexicans? He'd go, yeah. And then I walked past him and they were doing their cockala cockala thing. And it's like, dad, you can't say that. For one, it doesn't sound anything like Mexican. And for two, that is racist as hell. Yeah. Uh, growing know. up in the South, particularly like uh, a lot of my family is from Florida. Uh, growing up, I heard a lot of like, uh, 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 Spanish from you know the Gulf Islands which all has like its own stuff going on as well as like um, Jamaican and other like just the ways people talk the terms that they use things like that and then moving into the south you hear various southern dialects which get made fun of by people from literally everywhere else uh, in ways that feels extremely clear like People make fun of, like, Midwestern accents, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have the same classist undertones that making fun of a Southern accent has, right? Mm -hmm. The Midwestern accent is treated like, kind of like the mole accent is in the books. It's charming. It's rustic. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. Yeah. And I grew up where I grew up in the South, which was in Georgia, like, a lot of the communities and schools I went to. Like, communities I lived in, schools I went to were predominantly black, so I heard, you know, a lot of AAVE, African American Vernacular English, and a lot of that made its way into my vernacular because of that. And, like, when we were all younger, none of us understood that, like, we shouldn't be using it the way we were using it, but mm -hmm. as teenagers and kids, it's etc., etc., etc. People would make fun of it. People still make fun of it. Mm -hmm. It's considered... Like I was talking before about code switching and uh, how, trying to sound professional. A transatlantic accent sounds extremely professional. A southern accent, an African-American southern accent, any African-American vernacular English, any quote-unquote 
hillbilly speech from Appalachia, mm-hmm. any Appalachian accents, which there are a vast multitude of, and some of them, I will admit, can be near indecipherable to people who aren't from those areas. Uh, the only reason I can understand it is because I know people who talk like that. Um, it's bad. <laughs> it feels bad. Very bad. Why would you make fun of these? As an autistic person, it's something that I kind of had to learn to stop mimicking. Because I wasn't doing it to make fun of people. I liked how words sounded, so it would, you know, echolalia, I would start saying words, making certain sounds, things like that, and people would think I was making fun of them. Yeah. Um, this actually happened last night with Can, where Can said something, and then I made a sound that was in a similar cadence to what he had said, but he interpreted it as me making fun of him, but I, honest to God, was not. I was, I didn't know what to say, so I made a sound. Uh, being autistic sure does fuck you up. <laughs> All right. Anyway, language, don't make fun of people for how they talk and the things that they say. Just don't do it. It's a dick move. Be nice to people. It costs zero dollars to be nice. Absolutely. It costs zero energy. Well, I can't say that because if you're being nice to mean people, that does cost energy. But like... Being nice to people who have done nothing to you costs zero dollars mm-hmm. and zero energy. Just do it. Be kind to your fellow humans. It's okay. Brian Jakes. It's okay to not like things, but don't be a dick about it. Now hobbled, the group is given food and drink. And it's good food, too. It's good food and good drink. Um, Martin's pride is greatly stung, and he enjoys quietly threatening to strangle Dinger. To add insult to injury, the little bully and his group come over and force Martin and Grum to drag them around on the logs tied to their legs. Okay, I need I need to point something out here. I know, I know we just got done with a tangent, but like, as this goes on, it is implied that the adults, to a degree, understand what all of them are saying. Mm-hmm. They are all speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. It's like... It, 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 it's it's they're all speaking English, but the way that the 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 high beasts are speaking, it's it's a colloquial version of the language. It's got its own phrases. It's like hearing a Glaswegian versus like um, a different area of like Scotland, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. It it's they understand the babies may not because they don't know what certain words mean yet, but like the adults. Particularly the queen understands what they're saying. But she knows they can't do shit, so. It's just, it's one of those things where it's like, also, also, the things that you say to children, they understand. They may not know what the word means, but depending on how you say it, mm-hmm. they understand. And maybe they'll hold on to that word and learn what it means later. Yeah. Don't speak badly to children. They know what you're saying. Even if they don't know it yet, they will. And it fucks them up more than you think it does. Mm -hmm. Be kind. So, Palum and Rose, meanwhile, go to clean and prep the sleep area. Over the day, they learn the language is mostly just words run together into two or three different mixes, two or three times. It's words coupled in pairs or in threes, basically, where they'll say, like, big a mouse, uh, things like that. Yeah. Which is just big mouse run together, big a mouse. 
Supper is a messy affair, the squidgies throwing and spitting food to get a raise out of their caretakers. When it's announced it's time for bed, there's a mass escape and an attempt to hide. Pelham, knowing all the hiding spots, gathers them all up easy enough. Like, these are kids who are very spoiled. They're definitely kids, though, is exactly. the point. Like, they're definitely they want kids. attention. They do. Also, we were given the, like... <laughs> Pelham said, hey, use reverse psychology on them. It works. Why didn't they use reverse psychology on them to get them to, like... Probably because... Eat and go to bed. Probably because they're tired at this point and it only works so much. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's just Brian writing bad children yeah. to write bad children. They all wreck the sleep area almost immediately, and due to the watchful eye of their parents, the captives cannot rough up the littles like they wish to. They can't, like, pick them up and eat them into bed. Or spank them, or, yeah. Instead... Which don't spank your children! Yeah. Instead, Palum sings them a song to get them to sleep. It's an insulting little song, but the squidgies love it, complimenting how lovely it is. Would you like to read this mean little yeah. song? We actually get two of them. Because mm -hmm. Grum takes over the second verse, wishing more violence and suffering on the babies. We hate this. Palum immediately began singing. Go to sleep, you filthy bunch. I'd love to lay you all out with a punch. How'd you win a mother's heart with a squiggly trunk like an eel's back part? Is that awful smell the reason? You haven't been washed all season. Go to sleep in your scruffy beds. May nightmares enter your beastly heads. When sunlight heralds the new day break, may you wake with a tummy ache. Strangely, the squidgies were half asleep. Smiling and yawning, they mumbled, Very nice, very nice, sing a more. Stifling a chuckle, Grum took over with his deep, soothing bass. You my dreadful, horrible crew, and I wouldn't give to you supper nor dinner, breakfast nor tea. I'd spank the Deloites out of thee, and I'd make you wash ten times each day, till you bad manners were scrubbed away. And it's also implied that the the shrews can't understand mole speak whatsoever, yeah. which is a thing that we've gotten in the past. We're gonna blow, breeze past that. Apparently no one can understand the moles mm -hmm. if they haven't lived with them. Which some accents are stupid. heavy enough that it takes you a bit to learn them. But even then, you can still yeah. learn them. If it's English and you're patient, you can learn it. Hillbilly speak, mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. Hillbilly speak. Fucking, listen. If you've watched if you've watched King of the Hill, you know Dale. <laughs> That's hillbilly speak. You can understand it if you listen. Yep. Or He's saying words. Yeah. He's saying things. He just mumbles them. That's all. Yeah, he's just mumble talk. And that's just how it is. But uh, now they are wishing such horrible, awful things on kids. the children. They're just they're spoiled kids. Children. What the fuck? Like, okay, I will admit, when I was a teenager, I was a fucking shithead about kids. Okay? I will admit this. For the most part, a lot of teenagers were. Because, you know, children. We're trying to be, you know, adults. We're trying to be older than we actually are. We're trying to prove that we're mature. So we're like, well, kids are fucking annoying mm -hmm. and awful and they don't know shit. Guess what? Teenagers, you also don't know shit, but that's a whole different story. Yeah. Don't be mean. So <laughs> they're children. They don't know yet. They haven't lived in the world as long. Yeah, they're spoiled. But they don't know anything. <laughs> So, this book makes me so bad. We're almost out of this part for this section anyway. Now with the squidgies asleep, they're able to flop on some spare mattresses of their own. 
Palum goes to get them some food, and Martin complains that they've gone from slavery to slavery as quick as that. Rose comforts him and wonders what's become of her brother and Feldo. Surely the pair are doing all right. They start to drift off to sleep even as Palum brings them some food to eat. That almost rhymed. I noticed that when I wrote it down. I'm just like, I'm just going to keep that in there. I don't care. Slant rhyme! Yeah! Back at Marshank, Badring and Clog have come to a truce. They sign a parchment witnessed by a creature from both sides. And now, Clog is... Badring has this flourishing, beautiful mm-hmm. signature, and Clog scrawls an X and then, like, this shitty little, like, Clog. He's barely, li- he's barely literate, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's more of that, like, classism, where, like, we've seen this a lot with the pirates in these books, where they're extremely illiterate they don't know how to write and stuff so it's implied that badrang either learned this when he came out of the land or was planning on this all along became literate etc etc mm-hmm. it's also the fact uh, that he outwitted clog and left clog behind like we're, we've already started to establish that badrang is mentally or socially a step above clog is what a lot of the implication in the writing is yeah um it's it's it, it it has a lot of the implications of stepping on your own to get a leg up, uh, a thing that we also see with Droop. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it 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 is care about yourself. Not a good thing. All. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't step on other people to climb the ladder. You don't need to do that. You need to help people up along with you. Here's where I come in as a Christian and say, help each other out, even if the other person's a dick. At least if they're yep. not hurting you. If they're hurting you, then you're allowed to say no. Like, pe- Listen, people talk about, like, turning the other cheek. If somebody is being but... a shithead, go into their temple and flip all the tables. <laughs> Do it. All right. But if they're just, if they are just ignorant, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, they're just kind of like an asshole. Because some people are just kind of assholes. My mom's friends are not like in that. a, like... Oh. Yeah. Like and not in any like mean way they just rub you the wrong way kind mm-hmm. of vibe like oh she's from new york like that, that doesn't mean she has to be a dick she lives in wyoming now i don't get to get away with california isms here she doesn't get away with new york isms here <laughs> you should still help your fellow man up they are still human mm-hmm. this is a thing where i'm like i do not wish like i feel sympathy for other humans when bad things happen no matter who they are but you know there are some people where I'm like, but also, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Clog repeats the terms as they drink to the signing. Badrang is to call off his soldiers and lend slaves to Clog so his ship can be rebuilt. In return, once he has a seaworthy vessel, Clog will leave some of his crew as hostages until his return of the slaves. And if he picks up more slaves along his voyaging, he's to split the first batch with Badrang in return for his hostage crew. Clog is also allowed to feed his crew from the fort's supplies and stay there, as long as he swears to never spread about where the fort is to other corsairs. While refilling their goblets, Badrang reminds him that Clog is also to sell any slaves or good loot only to him as well. He'll give him a fair trade. They throw their arms over each other's necks, each promising the other it'll be like the good old days. No tricks, no underhandedness, no spies. And it's like, ah, here goes the game again. Yep. And 
Clock questions the mentions of spies and Battering smoothly says that if he caught any spy beast, he'd string them up and use them for target practice, just like he'd done to that fox. Turning Clog's head, like he grabs Clog's head and turns it from the back. He forces the Corsair to look at the arrow-riddled body of Scalrag. Clog is internally furious, but passes it off with a smile and a dismissal that foxes were always treacherous. Like, Badrang holds on to him tightly for a moment more, matches his grin, and then agrees and lets go. Have you ever, like, in movies and stuff, seen that thing where, like, two men are, like, they've got their arms around each other, one's got, like, his hand, like, kind of on the back of one's neck and, like, squeezes, and the other one, like, squeezes the other shoulders too tight, and they've got these, like, plastered, like, very, like, fake smiles on their faces, and then they let go and laugh, and it's just, it's that. It's so good. I love the way these two interact with each other so much. They, they make up for a lot of, like, like, when I got to this part of the book, it's like, oh, I can feel my soul healing a little bit. <laughs> um, so... They have big X vibes. <laughs> they do. We used to be best buddies, but now we're not. Um, <laughs> um, so We're back with the troops. Yes, back with the troops. Sorry, it just got knocked off balance there a little bit. Back with the troop... They move out at the start of a bright, hot summer day. Moving away from Marshank, they set up on a top. They set up on top of cliffs at noon. Lunch is made, and poor Feldo is flirted with shamelessly by Celandine, and he blushes from tip to tail. He's rescued by Trefoil, who sends Celandine off to do the wash. She's like, "Be gone with you, shoo, temptress!" And Celandine's like, ah, "How dare you!" Flounces off. Um, Apparently, she just does. Yeah, this. because. <laughs> Trefoil comforts him that she flirts with everything. Like, she's like, I think she's even seduced dragonflies before. And Buckler the Mole seconds it as he helps set up an awning. He's like, oh yeah, she stole my heart years ago. Even if I know she's just an actress. As they eat lunch, Roanoke muses sadly about why they'd even bothered coming up north. Uh, Bala interrupts her. I want to chuck him in the ocean. All while eating greedily. So he's talking and eating at the same time. As hares tend to do. Nothing but bad things in these woods, right enough. And, well, and annoyed, and justifiably so, Roanoke asks, is he done? He says, no, he's not done with the pancakes, but he's done talking. Yes. Chucks him into the ocean. Um, <laughs> she carries on then, making a speech of Barkjohn's plight, as well as the other beasts in Marshank. She gets the others roused up and is about to ask if they'd help in a roundabout way when Bala cuts to the point, saying they all know she'd wanted to rescue Feldo's father and they're happy to help. They start planning, knowing the best way in is to put on a show. Like she was she was going to do like a full like badger speech and Bala is just like, no, we want to go s save Feldo's father. Like we're going to go do that. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And she's like, yes, that's what I'm saying. You can let me have this. Mm -hmm. He's like, nope. <laughs> Feldo protests, saying they have to meet Martin at Noonvale, and then they'll have an army to rescue all the beasts. Not only that, but they'd not last five minutes in Marshank. And Feldo is right. Brian is kind of, I think the term is sandbagging, but he's basically slowing down the plot here. He's dragging it out to like fill out page length. Because again, like I've mentioned this in the first recording, he has to slow the plot down 
or the book will move too fast. But then you get situations like this where it's like, we don't need this, Brian. We don't need you to slow it down like this. It's okay to move it onward. But he's going to do what he's going to do. Just feels very out of place, very odd. Like, why are you slowing things down? Brian just really likes his side plots. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that I wonder is if he was like, if like word count in his books was a factor or if he was being paid like for the length of the book, like maybe that was some of it. Yeah. I don't know. So uh, the rest share stories about the places they've been and the tricks they've pulled. Yes, they're put on a show. Feldo and Brom will help them. When they once again protest, they'll be recognized. They pull out masks to place over their heads. Feldo starts to believe this on social media, you can follow us on Tumblr and Reddit at Abbey Archives. And if you would like to help support this podcast, you can find us on Coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash HS Enclave. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave. And some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.